0: The Scottish Mortgage Podcast, Invest in Progress, is back. Join the managers and their guests as they go behind the scenes of some of the most innovative companies of our time. Companies like Climeworks, who are pioneering technology to remove carbon dioxide from the air. Or Zobi, who are at the forefront of a new era of aviation developing electric air taxis. Or Aurora, who are building software so that trucks can drive themselves. Hear from the leaders of these exceptional businesses on their vision and what the world could look like if they succeed. Available now on all major platforms. Your capital is at risk.
1: Hi everyone, and welcome back to The Advice Show. I'm Zach, a reporter at New Model Advisor. I'm joined by data reporter, Alicia Hagopian, and today we're talking about advice acquisitions, what advisors should look out for, what stops deals going over the line, and how the RFA market is shaping up at the moment. Joining us today is Debbie Dry, acquisitions director at Loyal North. Debbie, thank you so much for joining us. A pleasure, good to be here, thanks. We wanted you to give us an insight into how the acquisition process actually works, and what do you feel is the one thing that advisors need to know before they sell their business? So,
2: um, typically, a seller will speak to a number of potential acquirers um, in, uh, during this process. And, you know, what What you're looking to do in the early stages when you're talking to a buyer is to really agree h- headline terms. You know, what does deal structure look like in terms of the pricing, the payment structure and the post acquisition ex- expectations? But there's not a lot of detail. We want to agree, you know, a- a- a headline terms. Can we do this deal? So we know we want to arrive at that fairly quickly before we start getting into the real detail of the work. And so at that point, we would get a seller to sign what's called a heads of terms agreement. And this is really binding both the buyer and the seller into a period of exclusivity where we say, right, we really want to do this deal. We've agreed the headline terms. Now we're going to start the process of getting to know each other. And that that exclusivity agreement will also include um, clauses that deal with confidentiality. So the buyer and the seller can start sharing really detailed information and the firms can get to know each other. Um, During that period, you'd also agree the legals. So, you know, the the, the commercial agreement that's going to define how you get paid, what the conditions are, what, if anything, you need to do in order to, um, you know, deliver on those payments. And, you know, this all culminates, if you like, in a completion date. And at that point, you know, the legal documents are signed, the money changes hands and the deal is done. So, so you know, very simplistically, that's, that's how a deal or, or, the, or the acquisition process is, is structured. There's really a lot more to it than that from a seller's perspective and loads of things that they, they need to look out for. You know, for a start, they need to do their research. I would encourage a seller to speak to as many buyers as they can to get a real understanding of what's out there in the market. You know, we see headlines um, all the time in the press about certain buyers that are offering, you know, certain deals and, and these headline numbers can really turn your head. But what you need to understand is what are you going to be expected to do to achieve those numbers? Is it realistic? Quite often a financial services um, acquisition is based on a, on a deferred buyout, which means part of the consideration is paid over a number of years and you may have, find that you have to do something to qualify for those deferred payments. That might involve changing your client's fee structure. It might involve moving client um, products or investment solutions. So you need to really understand what you're gonna be expected to do and is it going to be realistic to deliver on that to achieve the payments that you've been offered. You also need to look at the structure of the deal. You know, there's a share sale and an asset sale. And they have various ta- tax implications, and you'd be surprised considering that our sellers are financial advisors. You'd be surprised at the number of of sellers that I speak to that you know haven't looked into this in great detail to understand the implications to themselves. They do all this great planning for their clients, but they need to do the research for themselves to understand, um, you know, what it means for them in terms of what the buyer offering. I think the biggest thing for a seller to look out for is post deal expectations you know are their offices going to be retained are their you know name and branding going to be retained what happens to their staff how what about and and i think most importantly how they treat clients um do they need to change the fees the investment solutions the products now i'm not saying necessarily that any of that is bad but there needs to be a very clear understanding
1: of what those expectations are to know if you're going to be able to deliver it or not Absolutely, and I think one of the things you're talking about there, Debbie, as well, is um, making sure the clients are looking are looked after after the acquisition, um, in terms of you know deferred payments based on certain things that you might need to look out for. That seems to me to be one indicator um, for a selling firm to make sure their clients' interests are protected um, as they leave them, you know, um, away. I wanted to ask you if there were any other indicators that, that firms could look out for to ensure their clients. Are protected. Um, I know in, in so many acquisitions you see a senior director from the selling firm stay on for a period of transition, um, um, ensuring that change is smooth and that integration is smooth. But I wondered if there were any anything else that people could look out for.
2: I think a key thing really is for a seller to remember that due diligence goes both ways. It's not just about the buyer getting under the bonnet of the seller's business to see if they want to buy it. The seller needs to be doing that same reverse due diligence on the buyer to understand if it's a suitable environment for the clients. You know, what is going to happen to my client? Am I going to stay on as the advisor to ensure that smooth transition? If I'm not, who's going to look after those clients? Maybe, you know, I would suggest you go and meet those advisors because if there's not going to be an alignment and you don't think they're a suitable fit, I would suggest that deal's not going to work. You know, are they all going to be dealt with by a call center, you know, in the Outer Hebrides? Again, that might be fine as long as you're going in eyes open and you understand what's going to happen um, so that there's no surprises. I think I think for me, the biggest reason that a deal falls apart is when there are surprises post acquisition um, and nobody knew quite what was going to happen. So I think as well as agreeing the financials and the legals, those are important aspects of a deal to understand what you're going to get paid. I think you should be do, doing your due diligence to understand what's going to happen to your clients, yourself, your staff, your offices once you once you complete on that deal and the money changes hands because it's quite hard to back out at that stage. How often is it that maybe the buyers and the
3: sellers reach the end of the deal? And there would sort of be a nasty surprise on the other side.
2: Absolutely, and I think um, maybe it's not. You know, I'd hate to think that it was deliberate on either side, but I think it's down to not asking the right questions, not going in and do your not your due did your due diligence. You know, if I if I am a seller, I would suggest that you go and speak to other people who have sold to that buyer. You know, go and find some real life experiences, find out what happens, get into the real nitty gritty and the minutia about what happens how do I get paid how do, how what's the culture like how do I get treated were there any surprises for you that I need to you know you don't know what you don't know and you really need to undertake this due diligence properly it's not just enough to sit there and say well those financials look good and they've told me I'm not going to have to change anything you know get in there get it in writing
1: um you know and do your due diligence properly yeah, that sounds really good. Um, I wanted to also ask about um, how deals are funded nowadays. You know, um, we we see a lot of rising interest rates. We see debt becoming a bit more expensive. These are obviously the details that as journalists, we don't get uh, in, in a press release, you know, that's not disclosed for whatever reason. Um, so I wondered if you could provide some insight into whether you've seen any changes in the way deals have been funded over the last few years or whether it's pretty consistent. I
2: mean, I think it's still pretty consistent. There's a large amount of private equity still looking to 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 look for a return in this space. um, and i I see significant new players coming in all the time. so so you know, as far as I'm concerned, there is still significant interest uh, and that is that is ongoing. Um, you know, it just begs a few questions, really, in terms, you know the cha- I would say there's a number of challenges with p e private equity investment you know, being that there is typically a a turnaround time. They want a return on their investment It's typically three to five years. How are they going to, you know, is that going to drive behaviors to produce those rates of returns in that time? So, so again, I would just challenge the seller to ask those questions. What returns is the company as a whole expecting? How are they expecting to deliver that? And how does that impact me? And what am I going to have to do with my clients to, you know, be part of delivering that return? And equally, if we've got a three to five year turnaround time on a, on a PE investment, what happens afterwards? You know, I think that's really important. What's the longevity for the clients? Because five years isn't a long time.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's it's interesting. We, I mean, me and Alicia, Alicia in particular, um, are uh, sort of key in in our private equity leaderboard that we do, um, every sort of half year or so. Um, And it's interesting, we're seeing that Consolidator's growth is sort of slowing down. I wondered what you make of that market right now. Um, And, you know, you you, you mentioned that sellers should obviously know the market before they go into it. Um, So they know exactly what they're going in for. What can you tell us about what's going on right now?
2: There is a fundamental shift. You see some family office money coming into the space. There are certainly private individuals, which is where Loyal North fit into this. You know, Loyal North is backed by private individuals that have made their money in the industry, they know the industry, and they're basically putting their own wealth behind behind the proposition that they believe in. I just think a broader question about about the market as it
3: stands right now. I mean, it's sort of the classic question everyone's going to ask, but we just left 2023 and we're going into 2024. What would you say were the sort of broad acquisition trends for last year and going into this year? Do you think it's a good time for acquisition? Do you think that there are some factors that are going to play into that,
2: into debt and all the things around it? I I mean, Zach, you mentioned the cost of borrowing is increasing. That is definitely going to have an impact. You know, is that going to drive down potentially the prices? We've seen some really, really significant numbers being bandied about in the last 12 to 18 months in terms of the cost of acquisition you know you could argue that that, that these lending costs are now going to drive those prices down maybe we've seen the peak um you know i think there's a number of, of sort of factors that are going to impact on that not not you know forgetting as well our regulator and the the you know the the constant regulation that's coming in consumer duty which can only be good for our own clients but i think that's something that a number of acquirers really need to factor into um what they're doing and is a one size fits all proposition going to be appropriate for for clients going forward and how is that going to impact on their ability to generate revenues and profits and you know further acquisitions does that answer the question (laughs) that does answer some of the question I think the regulatory concerns are definitely
3: a big thing for selling advisors looking to sell right now because there are some advisors who I wouldn't say it's the majority but there are some advisors for whom that would be the key reason to sell this year for example um, but if I was an advisor and I was thinking, okay, in the next year or two, I'd be looking to sell. If you think that the prices will be going down, would you say you know, rush to go and sell right now, or maybe wait it out, wait another five years?
2: No, I think there are a number of reasons to sell, and price is only one of them, and I and I wouldn't even say that that would be the main driver. Um, you know, it, it can become a very lonely place in our sector now, if you are a, at one of the smaller businesses trying to cope with all this regulation on your own, safety in numbers, becoming part of a larger group, you know, can, can really give you some some help and bandwidth. You know, it, it is getting increasingly difficult for the one-man bands to be advisor, power planner, administrator, compliance manager, all in one, um, and, and to do it all well, you know, Ideally, what we'd like is for the advisors to focus on their clients and giving the advice, and you know, specialists to focus on, um, the, you know, the compliance regime, for example. But that's not always possible in the smaller businesses, so that
1: could be a driver for
2: selling as much as um, you know the, the the headline
1: price. Yeah, and for those smaller IFAs, particularly, you know, those one man bands, um, a lot of consolidators, I guess, would tell those 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 smaller firms um look the burden of regulation is getting too much you're gonna have to sell up uh, and retire you're gonna have to sell sell up. we're gonna have to take over your client and etc um how much truth do you think is that and, and is there in that sorry and what do you think the future is going to be for the small ifh you think there's just going to be an increasing amount of Niche small IFAs, or, or do you think some of these concerns are a bit overblown?
2: I, I certainly think they are founded. It is very difficult to, to manage the, you know, under under this compliance regime when you're on your own. I do think safety in numbers is a fair argument, but I think that is almost contradictory to where we are as a sector, which is like it or not, we are still very much a cottage industry. And what I mean by that is what is right for a client you know, a small town on the coast of, um, Cornwall might be different from a group of clients that are based in London, which might be different from a group of clients in the North. I'm not saying any is more sophisticated or needs more or less. I'm just saying they're different. And sometimes I think what can happen by driving this sort of consolidation, if, if you like, is that we are losing that personal touch. So I think we need to be very respectful and, um, you know, retain that sort of heritage and local presence and local a- approach and service, because I like the fact that my advisor lives near me, knows my area, and, and you know has an appreciation for me as an individual, as opposed to a national approach where you know a firm is imposing one service structure for all clients um, at a national level. If that makes sense.
3: Yeah, one thing I ju- I just wanted to sort of counter on that is. Obviously, from your perspective, Loyal North is a hub and spoke model, as we were discussing. And there's a a few other firms that are like that in the UK, and it has its own sort of unique set of benefits. But I suppose what some other consolidators might counter that with is well, if you allow each firm to have their own individual models, then, you know, how do we sort of manage that? How do you manage manage things like trying to avoid FOS claims? It makes it more difficult in a way to streamline all your processes and your compliance and everything like that i mean i'm sure you have your opinions on why that's
2: not the case i think you know you use the word consolidation i think if you are a consolidator and by definition you need to have one set of processes that can be easily policed and easily you know governed and uh, you know make sure that that's being done properly you know At Loyal North, it's not the traditional hub and spoke model, which is part of a bigger consolidation piece. I I wouldn't refer to Loyal North as a consolidator. We are an acquirer of decently run businesses who continue to run themselves independently post-acquisition. So the onus is still on them. So you've got all the benefits of a local presence, a local approach, local people. The offices are still there. You know, we've got one of our firms that dates back to 1792, I think that, you know, they've also then got the benefits of being part of a larger group, that safety in numbers, you know, the group buying power, the leverage now that we're dealing with providers and, and
1: can offer group discounts. Debbie, just going back to the to deals themselves for a second, um, in terms of, you know, anything that can cause obstacles in deals, anything that can cause delays, are there any immediate practical advice that, that that selling firms can look towards um for example i was surprised to learn um a few days ago that um one acquirer was telling me that one of his big frustrations is when a selling firm has um gets in a lawyer that doesn't have financial service experience and they spend a lot of time educating that lawyer as opposed to getting through the getting through the deal which seemed a massive surprise to me but i'm sure there are a couple of others as well that i'm completely unaware of
2: that that's hilarious that you mentioned that, because that is something when I'm dealing with a seller that I say, you know, please find a find a lawyer that understands who our governing body is and what the difference is, for example, between commission and advisor charge. Because if we we're educating them the lawyer at that level, it's gonna be almost impossible to get a deal done. So yes, get you know, you're gonna go and get your speak to your accountant for tax advice, get a specialist in to help you with this. Um and I think that goes in in terms of you know doing your due diligence get help go and speak to some other firms that have been acquired by the buyer I think that's a really key key thing there are a number of things that can that can sort of derail a deal um not being clear on what those post acquisition expectations are finding that out late down the line you know I think it's very important to get that information out out up front both from the buyer and the seller perspective because the best deal for me is one where we know the clients are going to be happy post acquisition. Because if the clients are happy, the seller's gonna be paid, the buyer's gonna retain the asset they bought and everybody wins. So I, I you know, I genuinely think if we focus on the client and how this deal is going to impact them, then everybody should win. And how do you think what do you think are the the top factors that advisors should be looking for
3: when it comes to the client set? Because that's something that we look at it a lot and in hindsight, you can often see, oh, it seems that the client was disadvantaged there. But at the time, I mean, I doubt that many advisors would be looking for that for that outcome. So what are the sort of three things that you would advise advisors to, to look for uh, with their specific clients? Because obviously all clients are different.
2: I think there is a, a real balance to be had between the acquisitions price and the post-sale ac- uh, expectations typically you can expect as a seller to be paid more if you're going to do more post-acquisition. And when I say do more, that might mean changing your client's fees. It might mean moving them to a new platform or product. It might mean changing their investment solution. And typically the acquirer in those instances is going to be taking a margin on that part of the value chain, which is why they can afford to pay you higher higher numbers in terms of the acquisition price. So, in terms of what to look out for if you're a seller is what does that physically and practically look like again it's all but down to the due diligence what products am i going to have to move my client to do i like them are they suitable are they more expensive than where they're at now again the investment solutions do some research let it not be a surprise afterwards that these are not suitable for your clients i'd actually be interested to know from the acquirer's
3: perspective once the deals on all gone through and everything's signed and you've made the announcement what are the first steps that you take to build a relationship with the client and to make sure that they're
2: comfortable with the changes that have been made? Well, it's quite simple at Loyal North because all that's changed is, a share, is the um, name on the shareholding. Um, you know, typically when we buy, when we do a buy and hold, we buy the firm. So the directors remain the same. The advisors that are advising the clients remain the same. Their fee structures remain the same. Their investments and products remain the same. There is no visible change. So whilst we might advise the clients in a positive way that this firm has now become part of the Royal North Group, and let's talk about the benefits that, again, safety and numbers, back up if something happens on a local level, advisors that can step in, but actually there's not going to be any changes. So we see very little upset um, in terms of our model Again, if you're going into a model where you are expected to do a lot of changes, I would I would strongly urge that you would investigate how do we handle that change? How do we notify clients? Is it an advised process? Is it a direct offer process? You know, what are the sort of um, communications that go out? What input do I, as the advisor, have into that? Um, you know, and just make sure that it's absolutely clear. And
1: Debbie, as well, another question I had was... Um... When when firms are bought up, how much communication is there in your experience of what a, what a, an acquirer's future plans are? So, for example, you know, an acquirer buys a, a little IFA and immediately does something that that, that will upset them. But that's post acquisition. So that's whether that be increasing the fees, whether that be changing it to a certain platform. Um, you know, how much communication is there, um, and how much should there be? I think these are the questions that you as the seller should be
2: asking. You know, what are your plans? How can you commit to me as the buyer? What changes are you going to make? And if you're saying none, for what period does that entail? And, you know, we, we talk we touched very briefly on the private equity, but if you are backed by private equity, what timeline is that private equity looking um, to get a return towards and what are their plans? So, you know, it could be that there is a five year timeline. Well, what's going to happen then? Are you going to sell the company on again? And in which case, who's the potential acquirer going to be that might make changes at that point? I I mean, you could only go so far, there's only so many unknowns, but but you do need to start asking these broader questions um, to get a good feel.
1: You know, meet the management team, see if you like them, see if there's a good fit there. In terms of um, funding, just bringing it back to a second, How much in your experience is, you know, you mentioned there are deferred considerations of the payment. Are they often um, are they often enacted in the same way as the initial purchase are? I've, I've heard about some deals where the initial purchase is funded by the acquirer, but not the entire one.
2: Yeah, there's loads of different models in terms of how this can be funded, whether these payments are based in cash, whether they're equity. And then you need to start asking deeper questions about if its equity. Where is the equity sitting? Is it equity in the business that I've just sold, so I've got control over how that might um, improve over the deferred pay- payment, and therefore, Im- you know, impact my personal deferred payment? Is it going to be equity in the larger group, which may mean that the performance of that equity may be impacted by other people that I don't know in the group or other businesses that are acquired? So I think there are so many variables here. It's you just really need to get a good understanding, and I think. It can be so complicated. Get advice. Speak to your lawyer. You know, again, I can't, I can't labour the point enough about going to speak to other firms that have been acquired by that acquirer to get their experience and understanding.
1: That's where the real knowledge is about what really happens. I just want to ask about the role of uh, brokers in these acquisitions. Um, so obviously, um, brokers are kind of commonplace um, to to use for for buying and selling firms. I just want to know what you make of their practices at the moment, um, and how important it is finding the right one.
2: I think there's a real mixed bag of brokers um out there at the moment. Um, and their services really range, um, and and also who they represent uh, can differ from broker to broker. So some act on the sell side and some act on the buy side or purportedly act on the buy side in terms of them being paid by the buyer. Um I think a seller needs to be very careful when they are selecting their broker that is going to represent them. They should find somebody that's knowledgeable about what's out there in the industry and that can advise them, but understand where that broker is being paid. Because you may find that a seller is going to a broker, finds out they're being paid by the buyer. Does that present a conflict of interest? I would say absolutely it's not one that's insurmountable. We have conflicts of interest in our business every day of our lives. We just need to make sure that they are transparent and we understand what the implications are for us. I think I've, I've heard that from actually quite
3: a few advisors about the conflicts of interest that they found with brokers. And especially some advisors who maybe aren't as knowledgeable or engaged in the space, I think they, they could sort of fall prey to that. Is there any way that you think that that could be changed or overcome? Because it's, Brokers aren't in the regulator's remit, but do you think there's sort of a change in practice that could be possible, especially about what you were mentioning—the sort of taking fees on both sides or where you're not sure if the buyer is paying really.
2: I think yes, certainly more clarity is is needed. I, I you know I don't know whether this needs to come into the regulated space, but I th- certainly think more clarity is needed on both sides to understand what services is the broker actually offering, who are they delivering it to, how do they get paid. And how does that then incentivize them to do what they're doing? And again, I think all of these practices are probably fine as long as you're going in eyes open um, and it's very clear, you know, what what services are being provided
1: for you. Right, that seems like a fantastic note to end on. Um, Debbie, thank you so much for joining us today. Pleasure. You've been listening to The Advice Show with myself and data reporter Alicia Hagopian. Today we were joined by Debbie Jai, Acquisitions Director at Loyal North for any questions please feel free to tweet us at new model advisor or email us at lma team at citywire.co.uk thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next week
0: Scottish Mortgage Podcast, Invest in Progress, is back. Join the managers and their guests as they go behind the scenes of some of the most innovative companies of our time. Companies like Climeworks, who are pioneering technology to remove carbon dioxide from the air. Or Zobi, who are at the forefront of a new era of aviation developing electric air taxis. Or Aurora, who are building software so that trucks can drive themselves. Hear from the leaders of these exceptional businesses on their vision and what the world could look like if they succeed. Available now on all major platforms. Your capital is at risk.